Our scripture reading this morning is from Micah 1, 1 through 7. It's Micah 1, 1 through 7. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us this morning. We're starting this sermon series on the prophet Micah. And uh, there's, if I were to characterize the book of Micah in, in a, thematically, I would say that this is a book that focuses on judgment and forgiveness. And so far, what we've read, judgment. A little personal background into how I come to be standing at this pulpit today uh, is I I come from, my parents are first generation Christians for all practical purposes. They had some experience being around churches but weren't really raised in homes where the Lord was central. Um, And so I was about five years old when when my parents became believers. I remember it happening. I remember it specifically with my mom uh, witnessing this transformation in her life that even as a child, I understood something was happening in her that was different Uh, And then she was telling us that this was the work of Jesus. And she would trace this back to to a number of things, but but here's one thing she would trace it back to, a song. A song that opens with these words. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you could know. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, my mom was a a stewardess for Eastern Airlines. 
And my dad worked uh, in sales, and they lived in Manhattan. They met working there at Eastern. And she was in Manhattan one day and um, in a park, and a man quoted that lyric to her. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jesus loves you more than you could know. And she said it haunted her. Not that this man quoted Simon and Garfunkel to her, but the idea, is it, is it the case that there's a God who has affection for me? Is it the case that the God of the Bible, as she understood him, the creator, is real? And the thing that haunted her was the idea that if there is a creator who made me, then he has a legitimate claim on my life. He has a right to me. And that idea followed her around until when my brother and I were little, she said, this is is not a wager I can trifle with. I need to understand, I need to seek to know if there's a God because if there is and he made me, he has a right to me. And that journey of faith that the Lord had her on in that way led to me coming to know Christ, led to me coming to wrestle with the same questions and finding myself where I'm standing here today. Simon and Garfunkel, who knew it? But I've been doing a lot of reflecting lately just on where we come from, where we've been. I've been thinking a lot about this church and where we've been Uh, particularly regarding the sermons, where we've been on this journey with with the proclamation of of, of the Lord's word. One of the things that is just a deep joy for me, one of my great joys in life, is the privilege that I have of being able to proclaim God's word here in this room on Sunday mornings. It is a gift. It's something that I, I, I love. I love it when I feel like my, I love it when I feel like my tank is full. And I also love it when I feel like my tank is empty. I love it. And I think about it in terms of, there's the individual sermon that I bring up here on these pieces of paper that you see me shuffling around. And it's, this is what I'll talk about today. And next week, I'll bring a new one up here. But then there's also this, this kind of ongoing uh, sort of conversation that we're having that goes from week to week to week to week. And, and I've been feeling a weightiness about the things that we've been talking about, particularly in the last, I don't know, seven or eight weeks here, because we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about things like desperation, the, uh, the, the, the man whose, whose daughter was dying and the woman with the issue of blood. We talked about how much we need Christ to heal and to restore us. We've talked about how to love our enemies, which is not for the faint of heart. We've, we've talked on more than one occasion, on more than one occasion just this year, I have issued a clear and direct call for those who do not have a relationship with Christ to come to him in faith. And I felt the weight of that. I felt the weight of the gospel lately. And if I'm being honest, it's been a little haunting for me. Because when I stand here in this pulpit 
And I say, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, I am calling you to put your faith in him. I'm saying that because I believe that the Lord wants me to say that. That's part of what a preacher does. But I also say it not knowing what he's doing. I don't know what he does through the proclamation of his word here. If I speak to a hundred people, I assume that a hundred different sermons have been heard because the Lord does what he does through the proclamation of his word. That's been my experience with sermons. I could give you three-point sermons where every point starts with the same letter and it's nice and tight and it just all fits together. It's still not what you're gonna hear. You're gonna hear whatever it is that the Lord's doing in you and I'm gonna hear whatever it is that the Lord is doing in me and I don't have any control over that. But one of the things that I have sensed as a theme running through our time together lately is, is this urgency in God's word to lean on Christ and to trust him and to trust him in particular with our pain and with our fear. And it's been a sweet season for me of seeing the Lord at work. And I see him at work in my own life. The Lord has been working in me in these last few months in, in ways that have been deep, in ways that have been searching, in ways that have been hard at times. And I'm being a little vulnerable with you about that because we're going into this new sermon series on Micah and one of the themes of this is forgiveness. And I don't know what the Lord's gonna stir up in you. I don't know what he's gonna stir up in me but I fully expect that he's going to continue on in the good work that he's begun. This book is about judgment. It's about forgiveness. And I'm gonna get into the historical context of it in just a minute, but I wanted to frame it, frame the series by acknowledging that I do believe that the Lord is working in so many people's lives in this church. Some of, some of this I know, I hear, I see. We have conversations about it, it's beautiful. And some of it I, I will never know. I will never know. But it reminds me that we're not playing a game here. This is not a game. You've been given one life. And I've been given one life. And it's happening right now. It's happening. And God is here. And he's present. And he's attentive. And you may approach life as somebody who regards it as a thing to manage, as something to just keep under control, to not let get too out of hand. It's a beast to tame, and that is the burden that you carry every day. And some of you may be the kind of people who just want to fill it with as much adventure and fun as you possibly can, so you never really have to stop and think. Just constant motion so you can deal with it that way. Or maybe you're somebody who every step you take it just feels like a slog right now and you're just tired. You're weary to your bones, you're weary. Here's something that's true. It's true for every one of us. We were made to know and to love our creator. Jesus loves you more than you could know. And it says, St. Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. 
To know this God is to know him in the face of the reality of guilt and grace. The reality of judgment and forgiveness. The reality of sin and redemption. That the path to the good news of the gospel runs right through the bad news of the gospel. And the bad news of the gospel is our own sin and our own brokenness and our need for forgiveness. And this is where Micah takes us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about forgiveness. And it's about God having a claim, a right to us. And our responding to that right by right of him being the maker and us being the creation of saying, my life belongs to you. And in that journey is forgiveness. And so I'm asking you to come along on this journey today and for the next series of weeks as we continue to wade into these waters and see the hope of the gospel. Micah, let me just talk about Micah a little bit. He's the prophet, uh, he prophesied during the era of Isaiah and Hosea. They would have been contemporaries. This would have been during the reign of the Judean kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This was a time of political and social and economic and spiritual decline in Judah, which was just beginning to look more and more like the pagan neighbors who really had no use for the God of Israel. The rich in Judah were exploiting the poor. That comes up in this book. The powerful were exploiting the weak. The religious leadership treated God like he was an idol that could be placated. That comes up. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible in its introduction to Micah says this. God deals with sinners in one of two ways. Deserved justice or undeserved grace. In Micah's day, both Samaria and Judah clearly deserved God's judgment for their oppression, idolatry, and corruption. They lived out this wickedness right alongside the motions of offering sacrifice, expecting that because they had the covenant promises and the temple in their midst, that God would accept them and protect them. In his great grace, however, God sent the prophet Micah to confront their sin, to warn them of judgment, and to call them to repentance. Micah prophesied of the coming judgment when God would abandon them for a time to the invading armies of Assyria and Babylon who would trample their cities and carry them off into exile. But while God is a righteous judge who carries out deserved judgment, he is also a merciful savior who gives undeserved grace and full forgiveness to those who turn to him in repentance. The specific hope that Micah presented was the promise of a shepherd king who would gather his faithful remnant back in the land and tenderly care for them and defeat their great enemy, death. This is where we see from you, Bethlehem, small among Judah, a ruler will come, ancient and strong. A lot of what we're gonna read about in the coming weeks will detail how God's people have rebelled against him. And one of the things that we're gonna see is we're not that different now. 
Today's opening verses give us a taste of what's to come. The Lord is a witness against his own people and judgment is coming. It says, behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And all this for the transgression of Jacob and the sin of the house of Israel. What was their sin? Our passage tells us it's idolatry. Idolatry, which the Lord says he will destroy. In verse seven, he says, all her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. It gets heavy, it starts heavy. Judgment, judgment, judgment over the sin of idolatry. But here's the thing about idolatry. Idolatry has little to do with the idol itself. It has little to do with the statue or the bank account or the reputation you're trying to protect. The reason God abhors idolatry is because it is a willful choice by somebody that he made in his own image to reject him as their God. If God is who he says he is, if he is the creator and we are his creation, he has a right to us. To God, idolatry is relational, it's personal. It's relational defiance against the one who loves you and knows you best. And often that relational defiance comes by way of using good things that he has made and giving our attention and our affections to them instead of to him. God abhors idolatry because he loves us and he made us to know and to love him. Jesus loves you more than you could know. It's not that he's jealous that we would find another God to love. It's that there is no greater love than his. There are no other gods. And it's a love that he wants us to know forever. And so we pick up a book like Micah and out of the gate, it's judgment, 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 judgment. And we may say, this is too much, but here's what we have to remember. We have to remember as we make our way through this book that God did not raise up his prophet Micah to send him to God's people to deliver the message that God was through with them. That's not the message. This is not a breakup song. It's a promise. It's a promise. God did not send his prophets to condemn his people. He sent them to tell them and to tell us that though we sin, though we rebel, Though we chase after other gods, he will not abandon us. Why? Because Jesus loves you more than you could know. In fact, he will redeem us. He will call us back to himself by his undeserved grace. Why? Heaven holds a place for those who pray. We have to look at judgment. You gotta. The gospel makes no sense if we don't look at it through the lens of judgment. 
And also another heavy word, guilt. Two central themes of the Christian faith are understanding our need for God's forgiveness and the availability of God's forgiveness. Understanding our need for forgiveness is tethered to the idea of guilt. Some of you may hear the word guilt coming from a pulpit and say, we are past that now. It's 2023. We don't need to talk about guilt anymore. It's an antiquated idea, something that we should be free from by now. Tim Keller wrote a book called Forgive that came out not that long ago. And in that book, one of the things that he talks about is how Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Karl Marx all tried to undermine the idea of inner guilt and shame and explain it away as a social construct that is antiquated and we are free now to move on from. And Keller writes this. He says, with these prominent philosophers and thinkers having become so dominant and with the secularization of Western society continuing at an increasing pace, Surely, as Nietzsche predicted, the experience of guilt and shame would diminish across society and continue only, if at all, among isolated pockets of very religious people. It is clear this has not happened. Over the last two decades, he says, books on healing shame and guilt by John Bradshaw, Brene Brown, and other authors have been read and listened to by millions, and other terms, low self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, poor body image, self-loathing, self-harm, map directly onto what has been traditionally called guilt and shame. Why has Nietzsche's guilt-free society not come about? If guilt is just a social phenomenon, that we could eradicate by simply denying it? Wouldn't we have figured that out by now? And yet guilt not only remains, but guilt and shame seem to govern so much of what we talk about today. All of our conversations about mental health, and Enneagram numbers and all this. We're trying to find ourselves on a map to know where we're okay and to know where we're gonna struggle and to have some reassuring voice that tells us in these places where we struggle, we don't need to feel shame there, it's just part of how you're wired and made up and yet we can't seem to regard those things as just merely being neutral. Why does guilt remain? Why does shame remain? It remains because it's tied to relationships. It doesn't simply speak to problems that exist in an individual, but problems that exist between individuals. Problems that exist between us and others because there's a way that we're meant to live in relationship to each other and a God that is broken. And try as we might, we can't deny it. And so the thought haunts a 21-year-old flight attendant in New York City 
until she bows her knee to Christ because she knows that she can't get away from this idea that she was made for a relationship with the one who made her. As your creator, God has a rightful claim on your life. And so, we move through this life with guilt and shame and discover in the end that the only things that can deal with it are grace and forgiveness. And this is what Christ has done for those who trust him. He has taken our guilt, he has taken our shame, and he has clothed us in his righteousness to present us as holy in God's sight, free from accusation, without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, as we read in Colossians 1. As we work through Micah, this minor prophet, a prophet that I'm guessing most of us have never studied before, myself included, by the way, this is new for me, I've never preached through this book before. We have an opportunity to remember why Christ came. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to forgive people who have rejected God's rightful claim on our lives. And he did not do this by way of a cheap grace. He did this by way of a grace that is costly. Let me quote Tim Keller one more time from that same book, Forgive. He says this, someone says, oh, God just loves everyone. But such a God is not as loving as the God of the Bible, who because he was holy and loving, gave us grace. Because he's loving, there's free, 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 free grace for us. But because he is holy, it is costly grace, infinitely costly grace. When I know, Keller writes, that I am the recipient of this kind of costly grace, when I know that Jesus Christ went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me there, that's what changes me. That's tears. That's amazement. That's exhilaration. That's galvanizing. It changes me because at the very same time, on the one hand, it humbles me out of my pride and self-centeredness, and it affirms me out of my inferiority and self-pity. It makes me hate my sin because it led to his death, but it forbids me to hate myself because he did it for me to make me free, and there is nothing that changes you like this. When we talk about forgiveness and we talk about guilt, it can be hard for us to hear. It can be even harder to examine our own hearts before the Lord with honesty. But God does not bring our guilt to mind to condemn us. He does it to tell us, for this, there is grace. There is grace. Because Jesus loves you more than you could know. And he calls us to receive forgiveness and to rest upon him, even as he calls us to forgive others. Let's pray.
Father, it's weighty to talk about guilt. It's weighty to talk about forgiveness. It's weighty to talk about judgment. And yet the beauty of the gospel and the reason we come to the communion table is because you have intervened for us to reconcile us to yourself through the gift of Jesus who loves us and redeems us who brings us into your presence as people whose guilt has been taken away and has been robed in the righteousness of your son. And we thank you for that gift. Lord, continue to haunt us with your word. Continue to haunt us with the reality that we were made to know you and to love you and that our hearts are gonna be restless until they rest in you. And draw us to yourself by your mercy and your kindness. And I pray this in your name, Jesus, amen.